Time marches on and leaves behind those who are not equipped for tomorrow. We cannot predict what will happen in the future, but we at Regent University aim to prepare you for it. With world-class professors and over 150 programs, the opportunities to find success in your field are many. So don't let tomorrow pass you by. The journey to your brightest future begins here. Visit regent.edu slash learn more. Yes, it is, and it's turning out to be a perfect Open Line Friday. We're doing a mix of uh, fun and seriousness. We're doing a mix of politics and culture. Let me give that number out. You want to weigh in on anything or ask me anything you can. I'll let you know if I don't know. The only thing I don't do is legal, medical, or financial advice. We leave that to uh, the experts like John Dombrowski and uh, Brett Johnson uh, over at Snell and Wilmer. And uh, anyway, six. if you want – huh? Yeah, we we know who to call, <laughs> right? Six zero two five zero eight zero nine six zero. And as we as we get towards uh, towards the uh, end of the show, I want to come back. Well, we can do it at any point. I've been talking about this profile of Norman Puthorst in the Wall Street Journal, which has a lot of elements to it, and it looks like maybe we have a caller on that. Pete and surprise. Hi, Pete. Welcome to the show, or welcome back to the show. Hi, Seth. Uh, they- uh, really interesting to be talking about Norman Podhoritz. Uh, it's not it's a name amazing. a lot of people know. Yeah, you know, what amazes me is how such a bunch of idealistic people like uh, Norman Podhoritz and Irving Kristol and followers of Leo Strauss. They were not, by the way. Movie. Those two were not followers of Leo Strauss. Oh, oh, who were the followers of Leo Strauss? Uh, his students would have been, his most famous students would have been my teacher, Harry Jaffa. I think more people know who Alan Bloom is. The Closing of the American Mind was a student of Leo Strauss's. Irving Kristol's wife, B. Himmelfarb, was a student, but not Irving himself. Uh, Walter Burns, I quote an awful lot. He would have been a famous Leo Strauss acolyte. Uh, Irving, no, and Norman, definitively, no. Norman didn't even okay. know who Leo Strauss was until right. uh, well, the 1970s. You know, the amazing... The I'll amazing tell you why a lot of people make the mistake, and I, and I won't accuse you ab initio on this, but I will tell you that the key mistake that a lot of people have made, and you may or may not fall in this category, is they lump neoconservatism and Straussianism together. They are two very, very, very widely different schools of thought. It's a sloppy oh, categorization. Go ahead. I'm really glad to hear that. Yeah. But it amazes me that idealistic people like uh, Irving Kristol and uh, Norman Podhoritz could form a movement that in time would warp into an organization that would cause such death and destruction. What organization is that? Uh, a movement, neoconservatism. Yeah. And, and be the, the most destructive movement of the first two centuries. Uh, More destructive uh, than communism and Nazism? You can't possibly be serious. Well, uh, it, it, for the first two centuries, first, uh, first two decades of the, of the 21st century, I think uh, the neoconservatives have, have caused a lot more death and destruction in the world. What death and destruction would you be speaking of? Well, I talk about the total unrest, the total destruction of the Middle East. Total destruction, the destruction of, the of Iraq. What, what was the destruction? Syria. What? What was the total destruction? Well, Syria is just a burned-out shell. And that's and because of the, who? 
It's because of the neoconservative movement. Well, I, you, you keep saying a movement, but give me the exact. What did the neoconservatives do to Syria? Give me an example of something a neocon did to Syria. I don't remember a huge war front being opened up under the uh, Defense Department well, the, that the was American run by Donald Rumsfeld. Con- uh, convinced the United States to go ahead and arm these uh, jihadists to go over here and, and try to overthrow uh, Syria. We even had uh, the current Secretary of Defense over there training people to overthrow the government. And he also put a coalition of, coalition of uh, Saudi Arabia and the Gulf states to go over there and uh, destroy the country, and they're pretty much successful. Could you identify over the last period of, I don't know, 30, 40 years, how you could take, take anything that goes back at least more than a decade, Pete, um, if there were an individual who was responsible for the most amount of deaths in the Middle East, who would it be? The, the person who, who most, the most amount of There is an actual the, answer. There is an actual body count and answer. And the answer is Saddam Hussein. He killed more Muslims than any other leader in, um, in, the, in, in the entire world in the last three, uh, excuse me, last four decades, three or four decades. Um, the Assads, uh, the father and the son, are responsible for probably upwards of 100,000 deaths and more than 500,000 refugees. They have treated their country as a charnel house. Um, and uh, not only theirs, but Lebanon. You talk, you, you, you bring me a Lebanese expatriate, and he will tell you that uh, the problems in Lebanon all are resultant of the Assad family. Uh, they were begging. They were begging for the United States to get more involved. When, 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 um, when Dr. Assad used chemical weapons against his own citizens when Barack Obama was president, what did Barack Obama do about that? First of all, as a weak trumpet, he told them not to. He was such a weak trumpet that they didn't think he would do anything in his red line. So they proved themselves right. Barack Obama did not do anything once they opened up the poison gas on their own people. What did Barack Obama do? He farmed it out to Russia and Putin. That's what he did. Uh, To the degree that the Iraq war was uh, a mistake, I will agree with you. I will agree with you. The Iraq war was terribly handled in retrospect and a terrible mistake in a lot of respects. But I believe a lot of it had more to do with strategy. A lot of it had to do with planning. It was a um, it was obviously uh, a poor idea to think that we could build a democratic regime in a country with no experience or for that matter, real desire for democracy. And when we started helping them rewrite their constitution and implanted Islamism into that constitution, that's when I knew we were now being um, being taken uh, prisoners of our own enemy ideologically. Uh, The notion, however, that, let me give you the global perspective on this, the notion that any of the Bushes, in addition to any other Republican president, heck, I'll go bigger than that, the notion that any of the Bushes, Clintons, Obamas, or Trumps wrecked more havoc, damage, and death 
in Iraq than Saddam Hussein himself is not only a lie and untrue, but will be said to be a lie and an untruth by anyone who is able to escape Saddam Hussein. You're kind of doing what Sadnan Dume was talking about in my interview with him, Pete. You're kind of saying that all the woes in the world are America's, or at least the woes in the world that you're identifying in the Middle East are because of America. And it would be nice, at least a little bit, at least for your own credibility, I'll, I'll give you the word on this, to maybe put it as to why we were there in the first place or why the America was engaged there in the first place and just maybe, maybe, maybe something about Saddam Hussein and his record on human rights and his use of plastic shredding machines to put people into and the hundreds of thousands of people he killed in going to war against Iran and in Halabja and in the graves that were dug up and found of the tens of thousands of bodies they didn't have enough room to deal with. Give me one word about Saddam Hussein's evil, Pete, please, for your own credibility. Okay. Let me give you a word. Uh, when Saddam Hussein fought that long, remember, they had the Islamic Revolution in Iran, and shortly afterwards, Saddam Hussein attacked Iran. Iran didn't attack Iraq. Iraq attacked Iran. That's and correct. Who was, America, who was America's ally during that war? Same. Who, gave him the, who gave him the pesticides? To make poison gas. Yeah, no, he, he, yeah, no, I'm not debating that point any more than uh, I would hope you wouldn't debate with uh, Harry Truman or Winston Churchill that uh, it was necessary at one time for us to align with Joseph Stalin too. That that that's just silly childish history, Pete. I'm trying to get you <laughs> to quit blaming America. I gave you the opportunity to blame Hussein. It was pretty easy. I gave it to you on a silver platter. I said, give me one word negative about Saddam Hussein, please. And of course, you had to take it. To America, Pete. Um, this is our this is our concern. This is our concern. When um, when we initially went into Iraq in the second Gulf War, I have the pictures. I have the signs. There were large portions of that population that at that time did welcome us. Not the entire country, but large portions of it. Large portions of it, and the Kurds still consider us their only ally. You know why? Because they wanted someone, someone to rid them of Saddam Hussein. Yeah, you give me a choice between a fanatic like the Ayatollah and Saddam Hussein, I get why we went with the lesser of two evils. I do get that. I do get that. That's serious foreign policy. It happens. We don't always align with someone who's the equivalent of a United States president to fight wars. That's called foreign policy. This isn't kindergarten, Pete. And that's why we would align with Joseph Stalin to defeat Hitler and then do our best to take on the Soviet Union. Happened in the Middle East, too, brother. That's a beautiful love song. That's a beautiful family song, by the way. Man that hath no music in himself, nor is not moved with the concord of sweet sounds, is fit for treason, stratagems, and spoils. The motions of his spirit are dull as night, and his affections dark as Erebus. Let no such man be trusted. Mark the music, says Shakespeare, in The Merchant of Venice. Yeah, I mean, if we're going to talk about uh, that, that's on music. Let me go back to foreign policy and America for a second. 
If we're going to talk about our mistakes, fine. We will, I'm happy to talk about them. We made a lot in World War II. We've made a lot in a lot of wars. Uh, but what Norman's problem is, as is my problem, is those who will not have an unkind word about the dictator and reserve all their ire and vile for the United States. For the United States. Do you, do you think the people in Xinjiang or in Hong Kong right now are thinking, gosh, how evil the United States was? I mean, it was a remarkable thing Donald Trump did with the Middle East. Remarkable. Just as it was a remarkable thing Ronald Reagan did with the Soviet Union. Remarkable. Things people said could not be done at the same time while the left was calling them warmongers. Yeah, the United States has its own self-interests, and it makes sense to determine and to distinguish between those we can work with who may not be Democrats against those who would blow out all the moral lights. This was the entirety of the aforementioned Gene Kirkpatrick thesis. The world is full of not nice guys. But can we distinguish between authoritarian regimes and dictatorships? Can we? And if we can, and there's a war, who do we side with? Do we side with the authoritarians who are trying to suppress Marxist communism and Nazism? You bet. That's why we have aligned with some not pretty people over the years to fight worse people. The only way to change that equation, by the way, the only way to change that, there's two. There's two ways. One is to become an isolationist where we never engage abroad at all whatsoever because nothing is in our interest, theoretically. Or the other is to do what Pete, the previous caller, is condemning us for having done, getting involved with people in other regimes who may not be so handsome or so courteous about human rights as we would like them to be. And so we have aligned with, yeah, people like Batista. You happier with the Castros? You happier with what Cuba is now than what it was before the Castros? That's the question. That's the question. What was Cuba before the Castros? What was Cuba after? And if you think it was better after, you don't know how to add one and one. Doug is in Maricopa. Hi, Doug. Hey, sorry, I'm at a gas station. Let me get back in the car. Uh, Save some money and get back in the car. (laughs) Isn't that the truth? You know, I, I wanted to respond to that last caller. And uh, I think I've mentioned before my, my uh, dear son, my youngest, was medically retired, 80% disabled because of wounds he sustained in Iraq. Um, but what disheartened him was not the wounds. It, it, they're, they're an interesting breed, even though he suffers in pain, you know, constantly and will the rest of his life. It's a funny thing. They do it again. But what, what broke his he heart... He said he'd do it again. I wanted not. I yes, didn't want that to go by. I want to make sure I heard you right. Yeah. He'd do it again. Yes. God he bless him. He'd do it again. That's, that's God bless not even him. a question. Yeah. But what broke his heart was how the U.S. press reported yep. what, the, what was going on and what was being said and what they saw on the ground. And let me tell you some of the things he told me on the ground. 
was that when they were in the cities, and this slightly different story in the outer provinces, but when, it, when they were on foot soldiering in the city, they were oftentimes assaulted by people in a pleasant way that women and, and families giving them the meat and foods for them. They weren't allowed, uh, they weren't allowed under orders to eat any of the food, but they welcomed it and took it and thanked them because the people were showing their gratitude. Yeah. Almost 80% of the tips they got were by young kids told by their families. They would say, be careful, two blocks up to the left. They got 80% of their tips from the locals. I met one of them. I met one of them. You're so right about that. There was a family whose name a lot of people in the audience might know because they're they're kind of uh, considered part of that whole neocon warmonger crowd unfairly. But I went to their house one night, and there was this young Iraqi girl that through a long story of State Department and this and that, she must have been about 20 years old, spoke perfect English. She had saved so many American lives by pointing out and yelling uh, and, and, and being their translator. Yes, you're right. It was the young. You're right. You're right, Doug. I saw it. I saw it myself. You bet. And, and for him, the reason they did that is the terror they were living under under those regimes. Yep. Under this perverse leftist look, it reality is there is no regime worthy of us their disgust for the u.s wouldn't even allow us to fight for ourselves because we are not perfect in right. their eyes that's a good point there uh, that's know, so a, that's another point i want to underscore if you're not perfect yeah. why would you even defend yourself right yeah yeah and and so the idea that we have to be perfect to be good we just have to be far superior to the rest, and we are that. We are not perfect, but we are far better than most. And I just couldn't and get so, that caller to say it. I just couldn't. You no, know? you can't, because the self-loathing, you, when, when you're willing to defend butcherous, murderous people, honest to God, these kids were risking their lives and their families were risking their lives to give to talk to our men over there. You know, yep. and, and the, oh, yeah, you know, they would be marked. Yeah. They would be marked as collaborators, yeah. kind of like the people in Afghanistan uh, we left behind, kind of like that. Yes. Yeah, exactly like that. And my, my a good friend of mine, who I'll call by his nickname, we always call him Sarge, and I've mentioned him, some of the people who did three, two, three years of duty in the DMZ, hand-to-hand combat, up in the nose-to-nose with the communists. He was in the rear guard as we collapsed. And it frustrated him because ever, the, the left viewed us as the evil, but yet all the butchering happened on the north and the communists. And they always ridiculed the South uh, Vietnamese because they were not perfect. But they were infinitely far superior. And the only reason we lost that war is because the Democrats cut the funding that we had promised them. They could have defended the gains that we had taken. And, and again, the idea is that the South Vietnamese were not perfect. But the idea that I'm not a saint doesn't mean that I'm not a better individual than a mass murderer. Yeah. Am I perfect? No. No. No, no but no. you didn't create killing fields by your absence. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Bless you, sir, and bless your son, Doug. Thank you for all of your service and your family. Bless you. We'll be right back.
Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. Open lines Friday six zero two five zero eight zero nine six zero. As we head into our anti penultimate segment, Jim is in Phoenix. Hello, Jim. Hey, how are you guys doing? We're doing just fine. How are you? Good. I was enjoying, you know, hearing some of the stuff about old music and uh, celebrity theater and stuff. Oh yeah. Something people don't really remember sometimes is we had a little thing called, and it's still there, uh, the Mason Jar. Oh yeah, had, uh, yeah. That, where is that had right. Green Day? That had you know Nirvana, uh-huh. Rage Against the Machine, uh-huh. ACDC, I believe. Uh huh. That and, and the Rhythm Room. I, I think of the Mason Jar well, like no, no, I think, not Rhythm Room. Rebel Lounge. Rebel Lounge went from there you go. Mason Mason Jar to the Rebel Lounge, mm-hmm. and it, but it's not around it anymore. Survived. The Mason Jar is it? It's not around anymore. No, no. It just changed owners, oh, okay. and they renamed it. Okay. Same place, same little spot. Oh, fun. You know. And then, like you said, you got Rhythm Room, you got Last Exit Live, and what people don't realize is Phoenix had a tremendously good uh, local music scene from like 2013 to 2018, and then it kind of you know we had a pretty like, good like music scene in the 80s too, didn't we? I seem oh yeah, to, yeah. I, I seem well, to recall and in the 90s when you had Gin Blossoms over at uh, was it Long Long Wongs. What was the I place mean, in Scottsdale? Something with the name Wheel in it, maybe? Am I misremembering it? Or I, I, not, we had some great blues guitarists me. that were huge in the 80s. Hans Olsen, yep, people that like that. Me. Huh? That could be. Yeah. And, and when you're talking about some nice love songs, mm-hmm. can I mention a band, but they're not really out anymore okay. from Phoenix? Okay. So it's called Messengers by Jared in the Mill. Oh. Okay. Real nice little love song with some nice turns of lyrics. Oh, nice. But one thing that gets me about the little clubs here, Yeah. remember when rock was all about, you know, hey, I'm an individual, don't let the government rule me? Yeah, it was kind of a libertarian uh, ethos. Yeah, yeah. all of these uh, clubs, with the exception of one, are all demanding your papers. (laughs) Are they? They They want to see your vaccination (laughs) paper or something that you took a test that shows you're COVID negative, and only one place that last exit live has fought it and hasn't you know, succumbed to it and just i just don't get it you well know? you know the- it's it's the same thing about the corporations that used to be you know run by conservatives and now run by run by the woke it's the yeah. same thing these these managers and these general i should say these general managers and these these owners, they've been put in some kind of weird panic and fear. I saw Phil, Phoenix yeah. Children's thing was shut down recently, a Phoenix Children's uh, Theater, if not technically that one like it, uh, yeah. out, of, out of the fear of COVID. And I got to tell you, when I went to see the monkeys at the Celebrity Theater in September, the greatest irony is you had to show a vaccination, proof of vaccination, mm-hmm. but you could get in if you didn't show proof of vaccination so long as you took their free test uh, that was made available to you, and I thought, okay, Which, well, at least at least they're giving you an out uh, with the free test. You know, it takes ten minutes to, or five to ten minutes to get the results. But then it dawned on me. Showing your, but, but then it dawned on me. Hold on, hold on a second, medical. Jim. Then it dawned on me. The people who are going in vaccinated are far more dangerous to the rest of the crowd than those who just got in on a negative test. Because the vaccinated may, may very well have or be communicating the virus where you know the people who just tested aren't. That's how upside down it is. And I'm going to guess in that concert venue, 80% or more 
went in on the vaccine passport and didn't take the test. That's upside down. In fact, I'll go further. It's public health malfeasance. The notion that you're trying to protect people from COVID by just allowing them in by showing proof of vaccine, but those who don't have a proof of vaccine go in by dint of getting a test, a negative, obviously, a negative test. If you tested positive, you weren't allowed in. The ones who weren't the vaccinated, ones who got the test, who chose to do the on-site test were the safer people. There is no guarantee a vaccinated person doesn't have COVID and can spread it or that a vaccinated person can't obtain it, attract it, get it. None. None. It's public policy malfeasance, public health policy malfeasance. Yes, sir. Last word. Yeah, it makes no sense. Yeah. Yeah, messengers by Jared. If you I'll check them out. I'll check it. I'll check it. I'll check them out. There was a short story once uh, that uh, Woody Allen wrote uh, called Nefarious Times We Live In. I think that we could call that this. Couldn't we? Couldn't we call this that too? Nefarious times we live in. Confusing times. Malfeasant times we live in. Maybe that's what I would write. Malfeasant times we live in. Yeah, just because a general manager comes up with an idea doesn't mean it's a very good one. In fact, what most of these ideas are are really bad ones. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Lisa is in Phoenix. Hello, Lisa. Hi, Seth. How are you? I'm doing fine. How are you? Good. I was just listening to the caller who doesn't like America. And I was thinking about what our ideals are, and they're based on Judeo-Christian values. People still say, you know, I treat others how I want to be treated myself. That's the golden rule, love your neighbor as yourself. Those ideas still exist. So I was thinking also about donkeys and how smart they are. So in the war between Iran and uh, Kuwait, I think it was. Iraq, Iran and Iraq, or Iraq and Kuwait. Iraq invaded Kuwait. It could have been that one. Well, whoever it was put mines in the field, and the Iranians... Yes, the keys. Yes, 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 yes. That's such a sad story. They first sent monkeys. They first sent donkeys. And the donkey, the first donkey that went in and got blown up, the others looked around and they wouldn't go in. They couldn't push them. So they sent children. Do you know that story? They sent children with keys around their necks keys around their necks you know what those keys were they used children as minesweepers do you know what those keys were for opening the gates of heaven when they got there that's that's what we're talking about lisa that's what we're talking about yeah what american would do that it's a different view of human life it's a different view of the protection of children and i will tell you um it's a view of the protection of children that perhaps animates so much of our concern about what we're doing to them now here in this country here in this in this country this is you know the 
there's a lot of ways, and you've heard a lot of probably phraseology over the years. You can judge a country by how it treats X, how it treats its women, how it treats its minorities. But the one that's agreed upon, obviously, from the get-go, is judging a country by how it treats its children. And that's why so many of us were pulling our hair out for the last year and a half by how we were treating our children here. And it's not as if before the pandemic things were going well in this country. We had a lot of problems in this country. We had a lot of division, of course, culturally, politically. And we had a youth crisis even before, even before this, the, uh, the, uh, the incoming um, pandemic, even before the advent of COVID. And then what we decided to do against all evidence— of this disease not really affecting them, at least not any more than most things that affect children, not affecting them as much as, say, the problem, the horrible problem of drowning, which affects them more than, than COVID. You saw nothing like doing to children to protect them from drowning that we did with, with regard to COVID. The argument changed. Once, once, once we realized that COVID really doesn't hit our kids that hard, the argument changed. Remember what the argument was? Well, they can transmit it to grandma and grandpa or their parents. Think about what that does to the psyche of a child. You must wear a mask. You must not go to school. You must not play with your friends. And we had responsible people in medicine and psychology and psychiatry telling parents to keep their children from playing with others. We had seemingly responsible people saying that and that they must be separated and masked. And if they congregate just for a little time outdoors, and even now that the schools are open where we put separators between the children at places like lunch, we don't even do that with adults who go out to restaurants in places like California where they require a mask. There's no dividers between people or masks during eating, even in California or New York. But we do it to children today still. What's the, aside from physical abuse and torture, what's the worst thing you can do to a child? Mental, psychological abuse. Implant fear into them. You look at all the analysis that exists on how children learn from literature, fairy tales. Yes, of course there are dangerous things in there, but all those dangerous things are put in a context that children can understand and appreciate and know what the heroism is in defeating them. There is no such context for children when it's come to COVID. None. There's no context. We have become a society that has become afraid of its children. We have turned a society of probably more normalcy than any other society in the world, though problemed, though troubled, though with youth crises. We have turned that society into some kind of Stephen King children of the corn culture where we fear our children and told our children we fear them. 
Every revolution eats its own children, the old French philosopher said. But that's the incomplete sentence of that line. The full sentence is, like Saturn, every revolution eats its own children. Why did Saturn eat his children? He was afraid of them. What do you say about a society that fears its children? The most precious gift that anyone can have. Think on that a little bit. Think on that. There's a reason that ideologically rigid governments create youth movements. There's a reason. They are easily manipulated for purposes of causing problems. And as Hannah Arendt said, beware the adults who play out their politics on the children's playgrounds. It won't end well. I'm Seth Leibson. We'll be right back. Well, that's a great song to almost end with. We'll go out with another interesting song, a little different from our um, from our usual, given the passing of Mike Nesmith. I was quoting um, earlier with Lisa just a few moments ago what we say about children and how they learn. Neil Postman, the great uh, sociologist uh, out of New York University, said the importance of fairy tales lies in their capacity to reveal the existence of evil in a form that permits children to integrate it without trauma. So it's possible not only because the content of fairy tales has grown organically over centuries and is under the control of adults who may, for example, modify the violence or the ending to suit the individual needs of a particular child, but also because the psychological context in which the tales are told is usually reassuring and therefore therapeutic. What does it mean that our children know what the elders know? It means that they have become adults or at least adult-like. It means, to use a metaphor of my own, that in having access to the previously hidden fruit of adult information, they are expelled from the garden of childhood. That's what we do when we put children in the role of adults. Children, it would seem, not only know that there is a value in being different from adults, but care that a distinction be made. They know perhaps better than adults that something terribly important is lost in that if that distinction is blurred. American culture has been for some time hostile to the idea of childhood. But take comfort that children themselves are not. Mike Nesmith, RIP. The rest of you, God bless you all. Until Monday, class is dismissed. Lots of channels, nothing to watch, especially if you're searching for the truth. It's time to interrupt your regularly scheduled programs with something actually worth watching. Salem News Channel, straightforward, unfiltered, with in-depth insight and analysis from the greatest collection of conservative minds like Hugh Hewitt, Mike Gallagher, Sebastian Gorka, and more. Find truth. Watch 24-7 on SNC.TV and on Local Now, Channel 525.